Okay, test one, test two, check, check, check. Is that thing on? Doesn't sound like it's on. Test one, check, check. Test, test. I see it popping, I don't hear any sound. I don't hear any sound. I need somebody younger than me. Which one? Check, 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 test, 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 test. Looks like that one. Test, test, test. Check one. Check, 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 check. Nope, that's not working. Check one, check two. Check, test, 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 test. All right. Check one, check two. Test one, check, check, check. Check, check, check. That one, check, check, test, test, test. Oh, what'd you do? Test, test. I messed with that one. I'm an idiot. All right, one minute warning. Ooh, you can probably turn that down a little. Is that too loud in the back? Check, check. You can hear me okay. All right. Okay, a couple of public service announcements, PSAs. Um, this year we will observe the Epiphany of our Lord on the Epiphany of our Lord. Okay, um, so uh, Epiphany um, is, uh, what is that? That'd be eight days, right? One, two, no, that's not right. Is that right? Yeah, eight days. So that'll be Monday, January 6th, 7 o'clock p.m. So if you can get away that night to come uh, join us, that would be wonderful. Um, Epiphany used to be one of the three biggest celebrations of the church. And historically, in the early church, Epiphany was actually a bigger celebration than Christmas. Say, oh my. Yeah, really kind of interesting. But a lot of that had to do with just kind of some pagan influences and that sort of thing. So Epiphany has kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, uh, hopefully you haven't taken down your uh, Christmas decorations just yet. I always tell people, wait till after Epiphany. Let the wise men get there, okay? Um, so uh, so it's, it, it is still Christmas, so we are still observing that, okay? So special Epiphany service on the 6th. Um, also, starting now in January, because we're uh, soon to be here a new year, uh, we are starting a uh, men's kind of fellowship night, so we're trying to get kind of a men's group going. And uh, our first event is Thursday, January 30th uh, at uh, 6 o'clock p.m. here at church. I actually believe that's the same night that the women have their book club. So we'll have two different kind of parties. Maybe at some point we get the men and the women together. Maybe that wouldn't be a good idea. Um, but uh, so January 30th, 6 o'clock p.m., um, we're going to grill some steaks, have a short Bible study, and talk about, uh, you know, uh, just kind of doing some men's stuff. Hopefully we can do this kind of once a month. So short Bible study, and then, uh, yeah, bring your, bring your own favorite, B-Y-O-L-B, bring your own Lutheran beverage. Um, and we'll have steak and food and uh, 10 to 15 bucks. I don't know, we'll figure out, just bring a little cash to help pay for the meat. We'll uh, grill some steaks and have some other fixings and stuff, Okay. Anything else I'm missing? Announcements from anybody? Pastor Grady? Nothing? Good? I hope all of your Christmas celebrations uh, were a blessing and you're not too stressed out uh, after all of the uh, activities. Uh, my family and I will be leaving this afternoon to go to Kansas City, so we're going to sp spend the week uh, seeing our family. I haven't been back in a year since I moved out here, since we moved out here, so uh, kind of excited to see, uh, spend some time with our extended family and have uh, kind of our Christmas. So some of you might still have some of those extended family Christmas things. So 
Uh, uh, if, it, if that's a stressful thing for you, just remember, it'll, it'll go by quickly. Tomorrow will come. Um, it'll all be good. Okay. No other announcements? Okay. We are starting a new chapter today of uh, Professor Marquardt's book, The Saving Truth Doctrine for Lay People. And uh, again, it's kind of fitting based on uh, early service people, you'll get it. Late service people wait for it uh, based on uh, Simeon. Uh, and so we're on the uh, chapter 7, The Sacrament of the Altar, in Marquardt's book, The Saving Truth Doctrine for Lay People. Let's begin. The Lord be with you. O God, our Maker and Redeemer, you wonderfully created us, and in the incarnation of your Son, yet more wondrously restored our human nature. Grant that we may ever be alive in him who made himself to be like us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Okay, chapter 7. On the most solemn night of the Lord's life on earth, he placed into the midst of his church the true New Testament, Holy of Holies, the sacrament of his body and of his very blood in the New Testament. Okay, I like how Marquardt starts this paragraph. He placed into the midst of his church the New Testament, Holy of Holies. So remember, in Leviticus, people, this will be easy for you as we study through Leviticus here on Wednesday mornings, but the Holy of Holies was the place that only the Most High Priest could go, and it was once a year, it was a really big deal. He had to completely, you know, strip down naked, wash in the basin, he had to put on all of his garments, um, and then proceeded into uh, the, the tabernacle or the temple through the holy place, would have a rope tied around his foot in case he did something stupid or keeled over dead, and he would go then into the holy of holies and perform then uh, his sacred duties, okay? Uh, Day of atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, the cleaning, the cleansing of, of, of all sins. And all this points forward now to Christ. So in the Lord's Supper, <laughs> and this is something that gets lost on a lot of Christians and even Lutherans, we are there in the presence of God, and he is there now with us. Um, and so that's why the Lord's Supper, uh, as we celebrate at the sacrament of the altar, uh, should be holy, should be reverent, and should give you a little bit of pause to think about what's going on, okay? Of course, as we come before now, uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, uh, we also stand before uh, the whole host of heaven, Okay. So in the Lord's Supper now is a wonderful connection, um, first, to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Secondly, to, as uh, John sees in his revelation, um, uh, Ezekiel uh, has this as well, Daniel talks about it. Uh, you've got, you know, the 24 elders, you've got the angels flying around, and you have all the saints, right? So your loved ones that have died in Christ, you want to see them again? The one place you get to be with them before you will see them again in the resurrection is in the Lord's Supper. Heaven there is open to you. And that's why Scripture speaks of the saints being gathered under the altar, okay? Uh, and, the, and then they only want for one thing, right? Grandpa's not up in heaven being sad because you did this or did that. You know, uh, Grandma's not ready to, to fly at you with a fly swatter. Did your grandma do that? My grandma would come after me with a fly swatter, you know. And so they rest from their labors. Um, they're not worried about what's going on here on earth. They look forward to one thing, and that's the resurrection of all flesh, right? They look forward to the reunion, the return, uh, uh, the return of Christ. And so, um, uh, you know, in, in some of the historic artwork, you, you'll, you'll see kind of the, the altar, right, which normally will have the lamb upon it. Uh, and sometimes there's connection to the Old Testament sacrifice, sometimes just an altar with the lamb on it. Um, and you'll see these little faces kind of peeking out from under the altar, right? Um, and at first it's like, well, that's kind of freaky, okay? And I'm like, wait, that's really cool. So all the saints are gathered here under the altar, and they're looking forward to that. And so we have a little bit of a picture of what's going on in heaven. We don't have all the details, okay? It's not like it's in 4K uh, or anything like that. Um, but... Uh, uh, a wonderful picture of what's yet to come, okay? So this is the New Testament Holy of Holies. Now, since this sacrament, Marquardt continues, is the very embodiment of the, of the gospel, differences in the understanding of the gospel must show up as divisions over the sacrament. So now he's prepping us by simply saying, we're going to have an issue in understanding the gospel 
if we have issues in understanding the sacrament. Okay? So Marquardt's saying proper understanding of what's going on in communion also is proper understanding of the gospel itself. And so when you miss the boat on what's going on in the sacrament, you're also missing the boat on the gospel as a whole. Okay? And he goes on, church history has borne this out. The main issues may be sorted out under four heads. One, and probably the most uh, one that most of us will think of, the real presence of Christ's body and blood. Two, is the Lord's Supper sacrament or is it sacrifice? Three, how should one go about preparing for this and what role does confirmation play in all that? Right? And then four, uh, sacrament, church, and confession. Okay, which is a little broader topic, but he'll, he'll get specific on it towards the end of the chapter. So let's start with the first one, the real presence of Christ's body and blood. The Savior's founding words are clear, and let's say them together. This is my body, this is my blood of the Testament, or New Testament in my blood. Okay? So at the church of all ages, Luther's small catechism therefore confesses that the sacrament of the altar, let's say it together, is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. He goes on, it is faith's way to say the deepest things in simple, straightforward language. Faith is satisfied to know what God is saying, giving, or promising. Faith is not interested into prying into the how right? So, you know, I think as Christians, and I still go through with this, it's my sinful side, I want to know the how. I was one of those kids that always wanted to know how something would work. And so, I remember my parents had this, uh, oh, I think we saw one at the uh, antique mall we were at down in Edinburgh. You ever wandered through an antique mall? It's like a walk through your, like, your family history. You see all these toys you used to play with, and then it makes you feel really old, right? And, and I'm only 45, almost 46, so for some of you, be careful if you go to an antique mall because <laughs> you'll see all these things from your childhood that are now, you know, antiques, you know? And I'm like, man, I wish I would have hung on to that. That's worth like $100 now, right? Um, and, uh, but my parents had one of these, these little radios, and it looked like the size of kind of a large bread box, and it sat on their bedside table. It had the little round clock off to the side. It was an alarm clock, uh, but it was also a, a, a radio, right? And so I uh, grew up now uh, listening to this radio that mom would turn on in the bedroom, and she would often fold clothes in the bedroom, and so she'd have the radio on listening to her doo-wop music, as I used to call it. Um, oh, I couldn't stand that doo-wop music. And... Uh, you know, I wanted the rock and roll stuff my older sister had on, right? Uh, Little Def Leppard, and uh, anyway, mom didn't like any of that stuff. Um, but long story short, th- this radio at some point broke, right? It broke. And so mom and dad were just going to throw it away. And I found out, they're going to throw it away. Why are you going to throw Well, it's broken. Well, maybe I can fix it. Okay? Eight years old, don't know a thing about electricity, and my dad just, just asked me one thing. I said, okay, you want this radio, you're going to try and fix it, that's fine. You want to take it apart. Don't plug it in until I look at it, <laughs> right? So I took this whole radio apart, and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I was eight years old. I knew that you, you, you plug the two prongs into that, and you got electricity, but I didn't know how circuits, and it was probably a radio from like the 50s or 60s, right? I'm not sure if it, I don't think it still had tubes in it. I think it was like a transistor radio. Uh, and so I'm poking and, and prodding, and, and I end up ignoring my dad's advice. So I've got this thing apart, and I figure, you know, if I plug it in, I bet I could figure out where it's getting power and where it's not. <laughs> don't do that. I got a really good shock and then a lecture from my dad. Okay, uh, so it, it's, it's possible I wouldn't be here today. I don't know, grace of God, I had an angel watching over me. But that's the sinner in you. You want to take it all apart. But the problem is, do we really have what we need to dive into the mysteries of God? You see, the sinner often thinks, okay, I, I can do this. I can figure it out on my own. But when you're talking about the mysteries of God and creation, all we have is what he has revealed to us, the what, right? 
But the sinner always wants to go to the how. Think of the angels. The angels long to look into these things, Scripture says. Um, and so even the angels didn't, didn't know exactly how the Son of God uh, was going to die. And so you can just imagine now the angels as created beings marveling uh, as they're praising uh, the newborn Savior, as they're singing glory to high, in the highest, right? And so thus we have kind of as bookends for our service today. Which two hymns do we have, Mr. Spray? We have angels from the realms of glory, and then we close with... Glory, right? And so, so the angels are, are, you know, they're simply receiving what God has done and they're returning thanks and praise, okay? So as a Christian now, one of the things that, that we need to try and move away from is, is to taking apart the radio, trying to understand everything, and simply accepting the what that God gives, okay? Early service people, think of how Simeon simply receives the what, the word of God. He doesn't dive into the how. Late service people pay attention, <laughs> okay, to how Simeon responds to the word of the Lord. He doesn't dive into the how of it. It's simply the what, okay, the Savior now that is revealed, okay? All right, questions or comments there? Nothing? Okay. As in all the other great mysteries of our salvation, so also in that of the Holy Supper, faith gladly takes God at his word. Faith simply grabs hold of the what, Christ gives exactly what, his, what, he's, what he gives, says what he gives, his body and blood. Now, how he does this must be left entirely to him. Marquardt says it's far beyond our ken or our understanding or our ability to, to grasp that. So we may, of course, help ourselves with fitting analogies up to a point. The ancient church was very fond of comparing the sacrament with the incarnation. For example, as Christ is God and man in one person... So his body and blood are sacramentally united with bread and wine in his supper. This does not, quote, explain the mystery, nor is it meant to. The comparison stays modest, modestly within the bounds of God's word and takes, on, takes, off, takes off on no clever flights of fancy. Okay? So later a different attitude arose. When philosophizing became a consuming interest during the high Middle Ages, the Christian mysteries were also put under the microscope of inquisitive human reasoning. There developed, for example, a detailed explanation of how the real present comes about. The bread and wine, it was claimed, are changed or transubstantiated into Christ's body and blood in such a way that they are no longer bread and wine at all. Only their accidents are left behind, that is, color, taste, shape, and the like. Okay? Um, I don't want to take you too much on a, uh, a story of, of, of philosophy, but this is, this is where uh, Aristotle, Aristotelian philosophy, invaded the church. And there was one guy in the Christian church, the Western church, that, 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 that just loved Aristotle. His name was Thomas Aquinas. You ever heard of him? And so he studied now all this uh, philosophy, logic, and critical thinking. Most of you had to take a course on that at some point, probably, uh, in college. And, uh, you know, the uh, this and if, but all confusing, right? And so Aristotle now uh, would uh, simply posited this, that, that what we have in, in the world can be divided into kind of two categories. The, the, the substans, substans, which is the, the, the actual nature of it, if you will, and the accidents, okay? Um, and so then the simple question is that, that Thomas Aquinas posited was which part of that is the Lord's body and blood, okay? Now, if you want to go further back in philosophy, and I'm going I'm to go down a path I didn't want to go down today, then we talk about Plato and Plato's cave. Some of you remember that from philosophy class? There's a fire in the middle of the cave, Right, and you're standing by the fire, and the fire puts off light, and what does it put on the wall? The shadows. So the shadow, you might say, and it depends on where you, you fall in the philosophy camp, the shadow is, is the world we live in. We live in a shadowy world. And so now we've got to find out what is, what is real. Where's the, where's the real at, right? So philosophy would say, is this, is th is this real? This this podium right here? Or, or is this just a shadow on the wall from the fire? And Aristotle took it one step further and now started to talk about substans and accidents. The accidents would be almost like the shadow, what is left over, what is the substance? 
What is it? Well, then you, you, you go from there into this question of what is real and what is not. Okay, Phil Spray had his hand up. He wants to debate philosophy. Mm. Yes. You want the microphone? <laughs> we, we, could, we could go crazy with this philosophy stuff. Marquardt's simple point is this. When you start to take now all these various forms of trying to, and go back to me taking apart the radio. Because when, you, when you're trying to take philosophy and apply that to the Bible, you're trying to take apart the radio and put it back together again with all sorts of information and opinions. Correct? And so, uh, faith simply grasps and receives now the what, okay? So, for, so for, for, for Roman Catholicism, and, there, and then Mark Ward will talk about this, not all Roman Catholic scholars like Thomas Aquinas, by the way, okay? And, and I've met with some priests who they would say, we do not believe in transubstantiation. And then I've got to take them back to Council of Trent and some other, well, okay, so in the past we said that, uh, you know, but really what it has to do for, for a Roman Catholic is when the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus, there is now the substance of the body and blood of Jesus there, and it's only the accidents that are left over. Taste, color, touch, that's all that's left of the bread and the wine. And we would say that's, that's a road too far. We would say, Jesus simply said, this bread, this wine is my what? Is my body and blood. Jesus didn't go any further than that, okay? Um, and he's going to get into detail on this. I'm getting a little too, too far ahead. So when we take the Lord's Supper, you get four things. What are they? Bread, wine, body, blood, okay? We don't get into the how. We don't try and explain that away. We just simply say, he says, take and eat the bread and wine, and now at his word, it is also body and blood. How is that possible? Are we going to put it under a microscope and see if the cells change structure? Thanks be to God they don't, <laughs> right? That would be very Copernicus, which is uh, what uh, Lutherans were often uh, accused of, that they were almost like cannibals, okay, uh, eating the actual body and blood of Jesus, and Roman Catholics as well. And so for people that come outside of some of those traditions, there's always kind of that well, wait a minute, if you're saying it's really the body and blood of Jesus, you know, but it doesn't taste like flesh or blood, so how do you believe that? Well, I don't allow my taste buds to become the judge for what Jesus says. If he says it's there, that's good enough for me. Does that make sense? And I still taste bread and I still taste wine. I believe that's there as well. Can I explain it? Nope. Do I understand how the radio works? No clue. <laughs> okay. And the more I try and take it apart, the more I'm probably just going to electrocute myself. Got it? Okay. Any questions here? We're diving into, he gets, he's getting a little deep here in this chapter, so this chapter's a little longer, okay? Unfortunately, Zwingli and Calvin, um, and, and these were now Swiss theologians, Zwingli was a Roman Catholic priest as well, just like uh, Luther uh, became ordained uh, after being a monk. Um, Zwingli ended up, um, he's kind of the crazy... I've had professors that have just kind of referred to him kind of as the, the bipolar Reformation guy. Um, I, mean, I mean, seriously, there, there's been some people, some, some you know, uh, theologians and, and experts who, reading through his writings, have said, this guy, he, he, had, some, he had some issues. Um, but, uh, you know, Zwingli ended up becoming basically a chaplain uh, so in Switzerland, they, they formed basically an army, a Reformation army, to fight against the uh, Pope's forces, right? And so Zwingli not only became a chaplain, but he also picked up a sword, okay? So, if you, you know, our chaplains that serve in the military today, raise your hand if you've been in the military, do our chaplains carry weapons? No, they do not. 
Okay. Now, in dire situations, there might be situations where a chaplain would to defend life and that sort of thing, but their job is not to carry weapons. Zwingli physically picked up a sword and, and went to battle, both as a priest uh, and, and did all that. It didn't turn out well for him. Um, they were overwhelmed by uh, Rome's forces, and he was actually cut into four pieces, quartered, and uh, sent to all four corners of Switzerland. So Zwingli was part of what we know as the Radical Reformation. Okay? So there's another subset within the Reformation itself of those who took very radical measures uh, to go against Rome. Uh, Luther, by the way, never uh, advised or counseled to take up arms uh, and, and defeat Rome that way. His, his, his whole intent and goal was to simply let the Word of God do its work. Right? Um, and uh, so Luther often gets blamed for some of that, but that's kind of how it goes when you're a leader. Okay? All right, just jump in here with anything. Okay. Uh, let's move on from here. So unfortunately, Zwingli and Calvin and the Reformed churches which followed them threw out the baby with the bathwater, as it were. They rejected the real presence along with transubstantiation. And just a heads up now for some of you that have come out of Reformed tradition have read a lot of Calvin. Marquardt's got some very good Calvin quotes in here. Calvin can be defended on either side of this issue, by the way. Uh, he's kind of wishy-washy, is what I would say. And some true Calvinists don't, don't like to hear that. So I'm just giving you a heads up. <laughs> okay? So um, Calvin had some really good stuff. Don't get me wrong. Um, I, I've, I've read a lot of Calvin. Uh, his institutes are pretty good. There's obviously issues that we would have with him. So for Zwingli... In short, they rejected the real presence along with transubstantiation. For Zwingli, the bread and wine presented only pictures or reminders of the absent body and blood of Christ, right? Calvin tried to upgrade this bare symbolism. Calvin could even talk about a real and substantial presence of Christ's body and blood, but only for faith. Objectively, that is, for the hand of the celebrant and the mouth of the communicant, nothing was there except bread and wine. Calvin's difference with Zwingli, then, was more rhetorical than real. In the Zurich Consensus, Calvin agreed with the Zwinglians that the body and blood of Christ were as far away from the bread and wine as heaven was from earth. Now, if you get into a conversation with a true Reformed, and there's many branches of Reformed, so don't shoot me for that remark, um, but th this is kind of where you'll end up being. So the same Jesus that is in heaven now, sitting on his throne, that we confess in the creeds, the three ecumenical creeds, is now also here in the bread and the wine. And, of course, we would say, yep. And they would say, you're crazy because he ascended into heaven. They said, well, how can you believe that? And we would say, he says so. <laughs> All right. Well, that doesn't make sense. That's why it's called a sacrament. <laughs> Sacrament comes from the, the Greek word mysterion. It's a mystery, right? Well, you can't explain it. So, and we say, good luck taking apart that radio, okay? Am I beating the radio thing too, too far to death for you? Okay. Since Christ's body was detained far away in heaven, it could not also be in the Holy Supper. In this view, whatever may be offered to the communicant in the bread and wine, no matter how beautifully garlanded and flowery language, it is not the body and blood of Christ. For Calvin, quote, to place Christ in the bread would be to, quote, drag him from heaven. Now, from the preceding, it may well seem that three basic positions exist concerning the Holy Supper. There is the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, which holds that no bread and wine remain at all. Or, as they would say, only the accidents remain. Just taste, color, you know, physical properties, okay? But that's not the substance, got it? And if you're confused about that, talk to Phil Spray. He'll straighten you out. Okay? Then there's the opposite, the Reformed extreme, according to which the Lord's body and blood are not really in the supper, but only in heaven. Right? So we would call this kind of the symbolic kind of view. Okay? Finally, there is the Lutheran kind of middle ground, that the sacrament includes bread and wine as well as the body and blood of Christ. Right? Four things. Okay? So on one side with the Catholics, you only get what? body and blood, okay? On the other side with the Reformed, and this is obviously an oversimplification, you only get two things. What are they? Bread and wine, okay? And then there's us stodgy <laughs> Lutherans who say we get four things at the same time, right? Yeah, it's like a two-for-one Christmas sale, right? So, you, well, that's not a good idea either because there's no such thing as two-for-one, right? Is there? I mean, you're still in or for free. I remember one of my boys about a year ago got so excited 
when he saw that he could get a, I forget what it was, a free, I don't know what it was, and a, uh, oh, I think it was like uh, one of the early fire tab- tablets, right? And if you buy one, uh, you get one free. And he's like, oh, it's free. I was like, no, it's not. You, you, you got to pay for the first one. Well, it's free. I said, no, it's not. You're getting two of them, you know, for $30 a piece instead of one for 60 Well, no, that's free. I was like, are you paying money or not? <laughs> right? I mean, I, I was in sales. I know how to, how to work this stuff, right? But ultimately, you're still, you're still buying and spending something, right? But that concept is there. So, so with, with, with God, it really is free. Grace truly is free. And sometimes that's hard for the rational mind to understand. I've got to do something because we're so used to the, you know, buy one, get one free or, you know, or 50% off, you know, manufacturer's suggested retail price. I mean, we did that in business, right? We had the manufacturer's suggested retail price. So that that two-inch mini blind over there, the MSRP of that would be uh, $180, okay? Now, our actual cost on it was only 40 You see where we're going with this? But because the manufacturer suggested retail was was 180, I could say 50% off, sell it to you for 90, and I'd be out the door with 40, 50 bucks in my pocket, which is a pretty good turnaround if you're in business. Okay, so you know if you've ever shopped for a new car, talk to Pastor Grady. He just bought one, and uh, he can tell you how all those discounts work. (laughs) Uh, I better stop there. I'm going to upset the business people in the room. So. Oh, where am I at? Oh, this is true. Okay. So finally, there's the Lutheran middle ground that the sacrament includes bread and wine as well as the body and blood of Christ. All this is trivially trivially true enough. Beneath the surface, however, the picture is simpler still. So actually, it makes more sense to think of only two basic positions, either confession or denial of the real presence of Christ's body and blood. So here lies the big division. Some of those who confess the real presence also have a false theory about it, Yet that is not the same order of importance as the basic difference over the real presence itself. Whether bread and wine are present obviously matters. Whether bread and wine are present obviously matters not nearly so much as whether Christ's body and blood are there. So transubstantiation is simply a silly attempt to explain the unexplainable or to take apart the radio. Okay? Luther always regarded the matter thus. He rejected transubstantiation, of course. Yet this was not, as we shall see, his major objection to the Roman Mass. Forced to choose between the two heirs, right? So if Luther had to take communion, you know, with Reformed or Roman Catholics, this is what he said. Sooner than have mere wine with fanatics, I would agree with the Pope that there is only blood. Okay? Um, So he would at least rather stand with Rome because there's still a belief that the blood of Jesus is actually there. And he said only blood because... What was one of the other big issues of the Reformation? Communion in one kind, right? So, um, so just one kind. So not both, body and blood, but, but just one. So there's still another interesting point about transubstantiation. It is sometimes claimed that if the Lord's words of institution are really taken literally, only transubstantiation will do. According to this claim, Luther departed from the literal sense. In reply, Luther gave counterexamples like these. If I point to a glass containing a beverage and say, this is water or this is beer, I'm obviously not saying that the glass container itself has now been transubstantiated into water or beer. Or if I were to hand someone a leather purse full of gold purses and say, here's the gold, no one would take me to be asserting a transmutation of leather into gold. When we say this is water or beer or gold or what have you, we are simply naming the important part, the content, without bothering to mention the container. To say instead, this is a glass plus beer, or this is cowhide plus gold, is not being more literal, it is just being pedantic, okay? All right, So, 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 so for Luther, the bread and the wine are still there, but now at Christ's word, kind of like a a glass, right, uh, would be now the body and blood of Jesus, okay? That's kind of a helpful way to think about it. Any confusion on that or questions? You like Luther there? Luther could say some really confusing things, so... 
Okay? I think that was pretty good. Not only do the words of institution not teach transubstantiation, but transubstantiation is not even the most straightforward reading of these words. For if we ask what it is that changes in transubstantiation, we are told that it is the substance, and this is where we get back to the Aristotelian uh, philosophy, the substance of the bread which turns into the substance of Christ's body. If we ask further what is meant by substance, we learn that it means something intelligible, something that only minds can grasp, but not the senses. Perhaps we have here the first few steps away from sacramental realism. Zwingli and Calvin later went much further in reducing the real presence to something mental. Rome and Geneva often have more in common than may appear at first glance. I think that's, that, that's a worthy Marquardt quote, quote to underline. It turns out that the most direct, most realistic understanding of Christ's words is found in Luther's stress on the presence of Christ's, quote, true natural body, the same body which was born of the Virgin Mary and was crucified for us, not a new body made up somehow from bread, right? So, so think about that. Is, is there a whole new body of Jesus now that is made up every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper? What do you think? Nope. It's the same body. Right? And he'll go on to make this point a little further, right? This, the same baby, uh, you know, the, the same God that took on, you know, human flesh in the incarnation, uh, the same, you know, uh, flesh that uh, died. And this breaks down just a little bit because Jesus, of course, is transfigured, right? Um, you know, so it, 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 is the, it is the same Jesus, but I, I think I made that point early on in my sermon today that, uh, you know, uh, Jesus and the Lord's Supper is more Jesus than the baby at the manger, okay? And did any of you early service people hear that? I'm surprised none of you caught me afterwards and, and asked me about that, okay? Because it's almost like, well, is pastor saying there's two different Jesuses? Now, I know what I'm saying. What do you think I'm saying when I say that? Late service people, you're going to listen really carefully now. What did Jesus have to do after he was born? Well, he still had a whole lot of law to fulfill, Right? And the sacrifice still had to be accepted. Okay? Now, now we, don't, we don't dive into and, 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 and divide it up, but the fullness of God now, in the fullness of time, has now come as the sacrifice of Christ has been accepted. And this is why the resurrection is so important, right? Jesus comes back and he shows his disciples that he's not Casper the ghost or Slimer, right? He's not eaten and food has fallen through him right, onto the floor, okay? He eats, you know, he, he's got a real, brand new, glorified body free from sin, right? Um, and so we don't want to take apart the radio too much, <laughs> but we do want to understand that, that Jesus, for all that he did, for all that was accepted for who he is, is given to us completely, okay, now, okay? Um, and that's all part of the, the, his, his testament, uh, and Marquardt gets into that as well in terms of uh, uh, the, um, oh, for Pete's sake, legal uh, last will and testament. Uh, come on, help me out. Another word for that, last will and testament, estate plan, living will, oh, whatever. Let's just move on. There's a word I can't, I'm thinking of that I can't get to. Okay, I'm ready to go on vacation. I'm sorry. Okay, where am I at here? Uh, the opposite. Okay, so however mistaken, the whole scheme of transubstantiation, outright denial of the real presence of Christ's body and blood stands out as much worse. It is the nature of Christian faith to receive God's revealed mysteries with simplicity, or Acts 2.46, let's read it together, singleness of heart. So the opposite of singleness is doubleness, from which we get our words doubt and duplicity. So to make the Lord's words, this is my body, mean, in effect, this is not my body, is indeed to depart from the simplicity of faith. Right? So that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's some highfalutin stuff there. It's well said. So those who refuse to take this is my body at face value must find an opening somewhere in this sentence for a non-literal or figurative interpretation. So since the sentence has only three basic elements, right? So now we're moving from philosophy to English grammar, okay? I know there's some teachers in the room, just like there's probably people that know philosophy better than me in here. This is and my body. 
one of these three must be given some unusual, non-obvious sense. All three possibilities were actually tried already in Luther's lifetime. His refutation may still be read with profit today. Okay. Uh, and he wrote that in the footnote. You can't see the footnotes up there. Uh, but in 1525, he wrote against the heavenly prophets, is the name of it, that these words, this is my body, still stand firm against the fanatics. Okay. Uh, and then in 1528, he wrote Confession Concerning Christ's Supper. And in 1544, he wrote Brief Confession Concerning the Holy Sacrament. Okay. So if you're a Luther scholar, people always talk about early Luther, middle Luther, and late Luther. And on certain topics, uh, just as you and I learn or grow or change our opinions, sometimes on small things over the course of our lifetime, Luther scholars will, if they're really trying to find out, okay, did Luther waver on this point or that? Well, let's go back and look at early Luther. Let's look at middle. Let's look at late. And with, re- with this, in terms of sacrament of the altar, this was a big deal for him his whole life. Is means is. And so he wrote some masterful words uh, and uh, penned some, some amazing documents uh, to deal with that, um, you know, which is, I think, very fascinating cons- considering the environment that he came out of, right? And considering the fact that he never wanted to start a new church. <laughs> he wanted to reform the existing church. He didn't like people being called Lutherans um, or named after him. He simply wanted to reform Mother Church. And, of course, that couldn't happen. Okay? Uh, we still pray that the church would, uh, you know, as a whole, would recognize its error today. Uh, and so, technically, the Reformation still continues 500 years later. So, when we talk about the Reformation. It's not just something that happened 500 years ago. We continue to, uh, you know, stand against, uh, you know, the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church still today. Now, should the Roman Catholic Church ever finally come to her senses, okay, that'll be a really tough time for us Lutherans because we're so used to being called Lutherans, <laughs> right, uh, and, and, and so used to certain things. Now, I doubt that'll happen. I doubt it. But wouldn't that be cool if you had a common confession of faith, you know, that you could actually agree? You know, and they made a really good uh, try for this back in the 90s with the Joint Declaration on Justification, I don't know how many of you, uh, you know, read that, um, but uh, it was not a good definition of justification. We wouldn't sign on for it. Matter of fact, uh, uh, President Barry, Al Barry, was, uh, was our president at the time, and the Pope came to St. Louis. Did you hear this story? You, you, some of your pastors might know this. So the Pope actually came to St. Louis. And, uh, and so, you know, we as the Missouri Synod would not sign this joint declaration of justification. And uh, Barry, I would say to his credit, uh, the Pope invited all the heads of the churches at least to come meet with him, okay? Um, and Barry wouldn't even go meet with him because he didn't want to give any public perception that what? That we were in agreement. Didn't even want to be in a photo with the guy, okay? Um, and uh, there's actually a, a, a Dan Price, uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Daniel Price, did a really good, he researched the Joint Declara- Declaration of Justification and uh, he found some wonderful uh, uh, papal mem- memos that basically stated that uh, the Roman Catholic Church was going to use this justification thing as a way of trying to reach out as a tool of evangelism. And so we'll say some things we don't really believe that'll sound like what some of the Reformed and Lutherans will like just to get them in the door because there's salvation only found in the church, right? Saved not by faith, but saved by being a part of the church. And, of course, we don't believe that as well. Oh, there's a lot of history I could dive into. There's some much smarter people than I on that. Uh, but it's, it's really fascinating when you dive into that. So pay attention to what you're hearing. Words mean things, right? And that's what Luther and Marquardt are getting at here. Is simply means is. Okay, any comments after my tangent there again? We're good? You're still awake? Okay. So, those who refuse to take this is my body at face value must find an opening somewhere in the sentence for a non-literal or figurative interpretation. Since the sentence has only three basic elements, this is and my body, one of these three must be given some unusual, non-obvious sense. All three possibilities were actually tried already in Luther's lifetime, and his refutations, as I mentioned, may still be read with profit today. First, there was a short-lived attempt to explain this as not referring to the sacrament at all. In this view, Christ handed his disciples the bread and then pointed to himself and said, This, which you see sitting before you, is my body. 
Unlike modern preachers, however, the Savior never uttered platitudes or trite truisms. The idea is just as silly as when Adventists or Jehovah's Witnesses make him say to the thief on the cross, Verily, verily, it is today that I am telling you that someday you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> I can hear Mark Quark saying this. It just makes me laugh. We hardly need the Son of God to teach us that today is today. His body is his, right? So more ingenious was the idea that my body really meant symbol of my body or even fruits and benefits gained by means of my body. This is fanciful, however, and clearly does violence to the text. The Lord, after all, refers to the body given for you, right? So there's the giving, and, 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 and to the blood of the New Testament shed for you. There is not the slightest excuse in the text for taking away the things themselves of which the Savior speaks and putting in their places pictures or effects of these things, right? So the first Harley-Davidson motorcycle I ever bought was a, was a 1978 AMF Sportster. It was dark blue. I bought it from a, uh, a Greek Orthodox priest in Lincoln, Nebraska, okay? Um, quite a guy. I, Greek Orthodox priests, we get along with them really well. They drink a lot. And, um, and, so, and this guy was big into motorcycles. And so I, had, I was on Vicarage, and you know, I've always had a motorcycle or two around, and, and, I, and I never had a Harley. I'd kind of like to take it apart like the radio and you know, work it. never worked on Harley. And, uh, and so found this Harley through a buddy, and he gave me a really good deal on it. But not before, you know, he had me over to his house for a couple of beers and, uh, you know, was trying to convert me, you know, to, <laughs> to Orthy. He did a really good job, but it didn't work. But anyway, we go into his house there in Lincoln, and he's got pictures of all these saints everywhere in the house. Icons. You nod in your head. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. And, uh, you know, and he, he comes over to one, and this is St. Patrick. And, of course, I knew where it was going. I said, no, it's a picture of St. Patrick. <laughs> now, we'd had a few beers. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 this is St. Patrick. I was like, no, it's not. It's a picture of St. Patrick. You have pictures of a lot of people in your house. He goes, yeah, they're all here. I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> they're, they're dead. They're up in heaven. They're around the altar. No, 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 no. They're really here. So, for, for and, and, you know, if you meet Orthodox, you know, people, Greek, Russian, whatever, talk, see, see where they go with this. He was, he was very specific that in that picture, it was not just a representation but now the substance of that person and of their sainthood, their divine nature from God dwelled in that picture. Okay, and then my next comment to him, and I was just a vicar at the time, I couldn't hold my tongue. I said, man, you guys have a lot of sacraments. He didn't like that one. You have a lot of sacraments. Okay, so when you try and do that now, I mean, just, just, just kind of let that, yeah. My wife says I tell too many stories. So, doubtless, the most influential of the three reinterpretations was Wingley's theory that is means represents. In this thinking, Christ then meant to say, this represents or symbolizes my body. When challenged to give examples of is, meaning represents, Zwingli offered sentences like Christ saying, I am the door and I am the vine. You've ever talked to a good Reformed person, sometimes you'll hear a little bit of this. A moment's thought shows, however, that the interpretations, I represent the door and I represent the vine, are impossible. When one thing represents another, such as a flag representing a country, then the thing being represented is always greater than the one representing it. So where is the huge door or cosmic vine which Christ is supposed to represent? See what he's doing here? Clearly, as Luther pointed out, the figure of speech in such sentences lies not in the word is, but in the words door and vine. These have become new words, Luther said, like fox in the sentence, Herod is a fox. The meaning is not that Herod is or represents a furry quadruped, but that he is clever as a fox. He is a fox with a capital F. Just so, the Lord does not represent parts of buildings or plants. Rather, he really is the entrance to heaven and the very source of life for his branches. Door and vine are metaphors. 
They are, quote, new, capitalized words, if you will. Is still means is, though. Okay, one more paragraph and then we're done. More plausible at first sight are examples taken from dreams, visions, or parables. Take the sentences, the seven good cows are seven years. Genesis 41, right? That's the story of Joseph, right, in Egypt, okay? And how about Luke 8, the seed is the word of God. Now, this translates supposedly into the seven good cows mean seven years, and the seed means the word of God, respectively. On such grounds, even the Oxford English Dictionary gives, quote, signify, amount to, or mean as a possible use of to be, right? Others would argue, however, that to be never has the sense of to mean. We are dealing here, they would say, not with real cows or real seed, but with dream cows and dream seed. And unlike their ordinary cousins from daily life, which might mean something or other, dream cows and dream seed in their settings do not merely mean years and the word, but actually are those things. So the analogy of a picture may help. I may point to a drawing and saying, this represents, who did I pick on? Saint Okay, that guy. This represents St. Patrick. By this, I obviously mean the pattern of lines and dots appearing on a piece of paper. But if I say, this is St. Patrick, and I would never say that, I clearly mean by this, not the markings on the paper, but the person they represent. Okay? And that person does not merely mean Charles, but he is Charles. I may say this represents Charles, and I may also say this is Charles, but the two sentences do not mean the same thing. Okay? Oh, I really want to do one more, one more paragraph. Be that as it may, in the Lord's Supper, we are not dealing with dreams or parables, but with sober narrative. The words of institution have a legal, testamentary force and solemnity, blood of the New Testament. One may not play fast and loose, even with a mere human being's last will and testament. Galatians 3.15. How much more are we bound to take the Son of God at his word and to accept that on this awesome occasion he said exactly what he meant and meant exactly what he said? Imagine the following scene in a secular court. John's last will and testament had left the farm to Mary and the rest to all sorts of other people. Thereupon, greedy relatives asked the court to rule that by the farm, John had meant not the farm itself but an aerial photograph of it which every farmer probably has taken of their farm, right? And my, my, all my northern relatives had the aerial pictures of their farm, okay? Which is really cool to look at, okay? Um, so which human court would put up with such tricks? So in the words of the sacrament, one greater than Solomon speaks to us. And we'll stop there for today. Okay. Woo! We've got a lot of philosophizing going on there today. Are you good? There's your head spinning. Just remember this. Repeat after me. Is means is. That's it. And just, just believe Jesus what he says. And just say amen. Okay, and stop trying to take apart radios. Let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us again to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Peace be with you. Amen.